Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Peter says here, you are the Christ. Now, that's Messiah. The word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. He says, you are the Messiah. The Bible had long ago began to promise that one person was going to come and restore all things. There would be one who would come on the scene who would crush the head of the serpent. We have been learning so much here on Practical Christian Living about the character and heart of Jesus in our series, Jesus Appointments, as we zoom in on specific encounters Jesus had with certain individuals and groups of people. Today, we look at the disciples and one very important question Jesus posed to them and poses to us today. Who do you say that I am? How do we know Jesus is Messiah? Stay with us. We're in Mark chapter 8. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, what a good thing for us to be able to gather together here and worship you, lift you up and praise your name and know that your presence is here with us. And for those who are watching online, that your presence is there with them as well, that we are gathering together we pray now that your Holy Spirit would do a work inside of us. We surrender our lives to you in a new, fresh way and pray that you would do your work, that we would be those whom you want us to be by how you work in our lives. And we thank you so much for your word, for the richness that is in it, that um, we can find exactly how we are to live and what you want from us. And here in our study today that we can see whom Jesus is and this unveiling. Oh, what an awesome thing. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses uh, 21, uh, excuse me, 27 through 38. Uh, as we continue our appointment series with Jesus, Jesus meets with his disciples, and this is an unveiling moment. This is a moment in his ministry where things change. Up until this point, he's been on the scene. He's called his disciples. He's been very popular. He's, he's showing his authority over sickness. He's showing his authority over demons. He's showing his authority over storms. We're, we're going to have an appointment with Jesus in a storm, probably this weekend. But he's showing his authority over death. He's showing who he is. And he does this by speaking to these things, just taking authority over them. And they listen and they obey as he does that, as he takes authority over them. And now he's going to take it deeper. He's going to show his disciples what he wants from them. He's going to show them who he really is. This one that has taken authority over everything. This is a watershed moment in his ministry. This is an unveiling in his ministry. We pick it up in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. It says, now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples saying to them, who do men say that I am? It's really not a surprise to us that in the region of Caesarea Philippi that he would ask this question because you can go there to this day and you can see where they had statues of gods, Greek gods, Roman gods that they worshiped. And there was a shrine to the Roman god Pan. Pan is the, is the Greek or Roman god that looks the most like Satan. Pan is the one that has hoofs on. And we get the name Panic from this Roman demigod, Pan. 
because they believed that he was out in the forest and that if you got out in the forest that, that he could attack you and people would panic from being out there and we get our, our name panic from it. So Jesus is in this region where there are these shrines and statues to these Roman gods and Jesus says, who do men say that I am? It's time for Jesus to reveal to his disciples exactly who he is. And so he says, who do men say that I am? In verse 28, so they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. And others say one of the prophets. One of the other gospels says that they said Jeremiah. We, we take these one at a time. They answer, some say you're John the Baptist. That's kind of a weird thing to me because John the Baptist has died recently and now they're saying that he's John the Baptist? Did they believe that the spirit of John could somehow have come back from the dead and, and somehow possess Jesus or that maybe they're playing the same role like John the Baptist was playing the role of Elijah, that Jesus is now playing the role of John the Baptist? Maybe they were thinking that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but it was a forerunner to the, to the Messiah. But some were saying he was John the Baptist. I think Jesus' preaching was similar in a lot of ways to John. John had called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. And Jesus will do the same thing. They say, some say that you are Elijah, which is again connected to John the Baptist. Because when John was asked who he was, he said, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. And that was a reference to Elijah and the second time that Elijah comes, which is before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And then another one says, one of the prophets. And this is even today how people reference Jesus. They like to make Jesus whatever they are. If you're talking to Buddhists, they'll say that Jesus was Buddhist. If you're talking to Islam, Muslims will tell you that Jesus was, was Muslim, that he was one of the Muslim prophets. That's who they say he is. They want to make you know, the Bible says that God made man in his own image. We as people want to make God in our own image. And we want to make Jesus like us. We try to identify with Jesus in that way. And that's exactly what they do. And by just trying to make him a, another prophet, well, a lot of people do that today too. They say, I think Jesus was a good man. He was just another prophet. He was a good guy. But I don't think that he was God. There is no way that you can study the scriptures and think that Jesus somehow, some way presented himself as just a man. There is no way. When he is standing in front of Caiaphas and Caiaphas says, are you the son of God? Jesus says, it is as you say. But from here on out, you're going to see the son of man coming on the clouds of glory, given dominion, power and glory forever. And they tore their clothes. They said, what further need do we have of a trial? He has just committed blasphemy. Why would they say that? Because in Daniel 7, you see the Ancient of Days on thrones and coming on clouds, the Son of Man, who joins him on the throne and is given dominion and power and glory and rules over the world. So when Jesus makes that claim, because they knew the Old Testament often better than we did, we understand what Jesus is saying. There's no way that you can study any of the Gospels and get the idea that Jesus thought that he was just another guy, that he was not the Messiah or was not God in the flesh. Jesus said at one point, before Abraham was, I am. I heard someone say one time, well, that didn't mean that he was saying that he was God. What did it mean? Do you want a cookie? What, what did it mean? Before Abraham was, I am. Abraham rejoiced to see my day and, and he saw it. 
Before Abraham was, I am. What would he be saying if he wasn't saying, I was around during the days of Abraham? And I saw Abraham rejoice to see my day. And so after hearing what they said about what do people say that you are, then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And this, of course, is the most important question for all of us. Not what does someone else say about who Jesus is, but what do you say about who he is? And Peter answered him, and this is Peter's shining moment. We make fun of Peter a lot because he's the guy that was always saying something, you know. Uh, a lot of us would identify with Peter. A lot of us rush forward and say things like Peter did. Peter says here, you are the Christ. Now, that's Messiah. The word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. He says, you are the Messiah. The Bible had long ago began to promise that one person was going to come and restore all things. There would be one who would come on the scene who would crush the head of the serpent. There would be the anointed of God, Isaiah 61. God was going to anoint his anointed and he was going to preach the gospel to the poor and give sight to the blind. And it talks about all of the things that Jesus himself did. There are so many messianic prophecies. And so he says, I think you're the Messiah. Now listen to what Jesus says. He strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. So Jesus says, I am, but you can't tell anybody. Why all the secrecy? When Jesus raised the little girl from the dead that we studied on Sunday, afterwards he said to the father, don't tell anybody. Can you imagine? Your little girl's been risen from the dead and you're like, why, why are you so happy? I can't tell you. I just can't tell. And Jesus does this a lot. He says, don't go and tell anybody. Because their view, we know what the view of the scribes and Pharisees, we know what the view of, of the leaders were of the Messiah in their day. We know it from the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know it from writings that we have from other places outside of Jerusalem. We know that they believed that the Messiah was going to come and that the Messiah was going to free them from the Romans, that they were going to go battle the Romans. In fact, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a, not part of scripture, but they found a letter that was written that said that when the Messiah comes, he's going to kill the emperor. They believed that the Messiah was going to come on the scene and be this great military leader. And they don't understand it. They know some of the scriptures, but they don't know all of the scriptures. The Bible had clearly said that when the Messiah comes on the scene, he is going to suffer. He is going to die for the sins of mankind. You have Psalms 22. You have Isaiah 53. And for some reason, they were looking at the prophecies that talk about his second coming and not looking at the prophecies talking about his first coming where he would suffer and die. And so Jesus says, don't tell anybody. The time would come for them to tell people that he was the Messiah, but it wasn't now. I think because of the way people would react. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, he'll tell them this many times from here on out. But as I said, this is the unveiling. This is the first time that he tells them this. This is the first time that they've heard it. When Jesus had said to Peter, James, and John, Andrew, why they were fixing their nets, follow me. They had no idea that they were following someone who was going to suffer and die, who was going to be handed over uh, with brutality to the Romans and die, and then rise again. They had no idea. When he called Levi, 
when the rest of the disciples began to follow him and they saw all the miracles that were happening and there were all of the crowds that were taking place and the feeding of the 5,000. They had no idea. But now Jesus says, things are about to get serious and I need to let you know why I am here. The Son of Man, notice the reference. This Jesus most often referred to himself as the Son of Man. I already told you what the Son of Man passage is all about. He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He just pretty much laid it out there. They didn't realize it until after he'd risen from the dead. Then they remembered, oh yeah, he said he was going to rise from the dead. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, again, that's just funny. Peter taking Jesus aside and beginning to rebuke him. I think here we might be able to learn something from Peter. When we're going to rebuke somebody, let's take them aside to rebuke them. Don't rebuke them in front of the other apostles. So Peter takes him aside, which is probably a good thing, but he begins to rebuke him. He's like, mm, suffer, die? No. We got a different plan. We got a plan that's, that's radically different than this. And so he takes him aside to rebuke him. And it says, but when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Peter had rebuked him privately. He turns around, looks at the disciples, and he rebukes Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The kind of thinking that there is not going to be any suffering for the Messiah or in the life of a Christian is demonic thinking. It's what the enemy would like us to think that we don't have any sacrifices, that we don't have any difficulties, that we don't have any trials, that we don't have any troubles. That's satanic thinking. And when Peter said to Jesus, these things, may it never be, Lord, let these things, don't even talk about these things. Jesus said, that's satanic. That comes from a satanic place. I, I understand, and we talked a little bit about this, I think a couple of weeks ago, this self-help kind of gospel that's being preached. Invite Jesus into your life and nothing bad's going to happen to you. Invite Jesus in your life and he's going to help you. He's going to help you fly the plane. When I gave my life to Christ when I was 14 years old, I definitely received him in the sense of God as my co-pilot. You know that kind of Christianity? It's I'm flying the plane and when things get out of control, I give it to God. And God brings it all back, makes it good again, and then gives it back to me. That was my view of God at 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. That God was here to help make my life better and to help me as I navigate my way through the world. When the rug was taken out from under me when I was 18 years old and I walked away from the Lord for a year and God, God came after me. You know, he says, he'll leave the 99, I'll go after the one. Which is interesting because that's, what shepherd would do that? What shepherd would leave the 99 and go after the one? You gotta, you gotta protect the 99. But Jesus says, you're so important, I'll leave the 99 and I'll go after the one. And Jesus came after me. And when I recommitted my life to Christ, I was on my way home, I was listening to the radio and I heard a song that really touched me. And I, I really wanted to, to give my life back to him. He was calling me home. The song was Little Pilgrim. And uh, it was a song about someone who had walked away from the Lord and needed to come back again. When I got home, I prayed a prayer that was probably in my life a more powerful prayer than I prayed when I got saved. Because it had a lot more depth, it had a lot more understanding. I said, 
okay, God, I'm done. Whatever you want, that's what I want. I had been wrestling with God like Jacob for all of those years, and even when I was backslidden. And when I, it was a surrender, it was like, okay, God, I'm finished. Whatever you want. What's really funny is that in my mind, when I said that, it was like, whatever you want, difficulties, hardships, whatever, not what I want, all this greatness, but whatever you want. What I didn't realize is that what I wanted compared to what God wanted was so radically different. And of course, what I gain is far more than what happens here on this earth. It's all of eternity. But as Christians, it's not about just being comfortable. It's not about never suffering. It's not about not having tribulation. It's not about not being persecuted. It's about being, well, the Bible uses a couple analogies. It's like being an athlete who competes to win the prize, who doesn't box as if Paul says, I don't box like I'm boxing the air. I'm serious about this. He says, good soldiers don't entangle themselves in the things of the world. And that's what we as Christians are supposed to do. We have a call. We have a purpose. We have a cause. And it's much more than just being comfortable. It's much more than just saying, well, I'm going to give my life to Christ so I, can, so I can have my fire insurance paid. Listen, I don't think it's a bad thing to have fire insurance paid. I think it's a good thing. You, when you die, you know you're going to be in the presence of God. But that's not all that Christianity is. God isn't just checking the box. Ah, there's another one. There's another one. There's another one. There's another one. God's transforming. God's empowering. God's filling you with the Holy Spirit. And so it says, when he had, verse 34, when he called the people to himself, his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. As I said, this is the unveiling. A little bit later on, Jesus will say it over and over again. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. He had said earlier, the Son of Man must suffer. It's a must. It wasn't an option. The Son of Man, it was written about him already. He must suffer. You as a disciple must deny yourself pick up your cross and follow him. And remember, when Jesus tells them this, this is in the middle of his ministry, they see crucified people all the time, but Jesus himself has not been crucified. The cross was not the symbol that it is today. You say, well, I carry my cross. I got a cross on my necklace that I wear. I have a ring that has a cross on it. The only ring, I, I have a ring from my dad. Some of the few things that I have from my dad, it's a ring with a, a cross on it. You have your eyebrow ring with a little cross on it. So I'm carrying my cross. It's, of course, it's not what it means. It means that you are, your life is over. When someone carried their cross, they were convicted. Then they carried their cross and they were executed. It would be like walking death row now. Like you're convicted and they're going to give you lethal injection. They're going to kill you. So the time comes, they come and they get you out of your cell and they flank you with two guards and you walk down, you walk to the room where they strap you in and they give you a lethal injection. So while you're walking down that road, your life is done. You're a dead man walking, right? That's what Jesus was saying. But he didn't say, take up your cross and go out and get crucified. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Come to the end of your life and follow me. What does it mean to die to yourself? I think there's three different things. First of all, it means 
that we have died with Christ in the past. When he was on that cross, he died. We die to ourselves because when we receive him as a savior, we literally die with him. The Bible says in Romans chapter six, you have been crucified with Christ and you are dead to sin because you, you have died with him. He died and because he died, death no longer has authority in your life because he identified with you and he was a substitute for you. Just think about that. The consequences of sin. I'm not saying they're all gone. Sin is sin because it's inherently immoral. Sin isn't sin just because God decided, I need to say something is sin, so I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to make that sin. The Bible says, do not be drunk with wine because in that is, um, what does it say? Um, what's the word that it uses? In that is, I can't remember the word, but don't be drunk with wine. Getting drunk has inherent problems with it. And so God doesn't want you to get drunk. Bearing false witness against somebody is inherently evil. When you say, I saw somebody do something when they didn't do it, when you slander somebody, that's inherently evil and it hurts people. And that's why it's sin. So sin has consequences. The ultimate consequence of sin is that when you die, you're separated from God forever. You're going to die spiritually, not just physically. But when Jesus takes that, that death for you on the cross... Now, the ultimate consequence of death is gone. When I die, I'm going to live. Sin killed me, but Jesus brought me back to life because I died with him at the cross. Death has, has been removed from my life because Christ died for me and I died with him. I have been crucified with Christ, the Bible says. The life that I now live I live for him. I live for the son of man. That's what Paul wrote. To die to yourself also means that you've died to sin. And this means that it doesn't mean that we don't have a sin nature anymore. I wish it did. Trust me, I wish it did. I wish that when we were born again, suddenly it's like, whoop, sin nature's gone. I, I just want, I want to be passionate for Jesus and I just want all the joy and good. And I just don't want to struggle with sin anymore. But the Bible tells us that there's a battle going on inside of you. The flesh battling against the spirit, the flesh wanting the things of the flesh and the spirit wanting the things of God so that each one of us has this desire to do something sinful. But we also have the desire to do what God wants us to do. And there's a battle that goes on inside of us. And we have died to sin, meaning that you should no longer give into it. If we're dead to sin and we're not going to have the ultimate consequence of sin, then we should not be giving into sin now. We're going to when we go and we ask for forgiveness. We understand that but we should be allowing God to work those things out of our lives. Finally, what it means to die to yourself is that you no longer are living for yourself. When I came back at 19 years old and I prayed that prayer, okay, God, I'm done. What was I saying? I'm, I'm done living my life. I'm giving up my plans, my desires, my mode, whatever I want to do, I'm laying it all down. It is no longer I that live but it is Christ that lives in me. And you say, well, that should be, you know, something taught at a pastor's conference because when you become a pastor, that's what should happen. No, no, we as pastors are meant to equip you for the work of the ministry. You are called by God to lay down your life. Have you done that? Have you denied yourself? Have you said, whatever plans, desires I have, I'm gonna give them up now. And Lord, I wanna pick up whatever you want for me. What do you want? 
I, I give in. Whatever you want from me, that's what I want. My life is yours. I will now live it for you. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kagan 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.